welcome to People of the Pod, brought to you by American Jewish Committee. Each week, we take you beyond the headlines to help you understand what they all mean for America, Israel, and the Jewish people. I'm Sefi Kogan. And I'm Manya Brashear-Pashman. Last month, filmmaker Martin Doblemeyer released a new documentary about Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel. The film, titled Spiritual Audacity, The Abraham Joshua Heschel Story, is one of a series on American greats, including Dorothy Day, Reinhold Niebuhr, and Howard Thurman. Spiritual Audacity will air on public television stations starting May 5th to commemorate Jewish America Heritage Month. Martin is with us now to talk about the film and its relevance today. Martin, welcome to People of the Pod. It's great to be here. So before we started recording, you were saying that people wonder why a documentary about Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel is relevant today. My jaw dropped because the answer seems so obvious to me. But can you tell listeners who might be wondering how Heschel's example and scholarship, how they matter in the 21st century? Can you explain that? Well, well, first of all, thanks for having me, and uh, I'm, it's a, it's a pleasure to be with, a, with an AJC project. So I think that Heschel's one of the great historic religious figures of the 20th century. That's why we wanted to include him as part of a series that we were doing on great figures of the 20th century. And part of the reason is that, you know, here we are 50, 60 years after he passes away, and we're still looking into Heschel as a source of wisdom and inspiration to how we should continue to think in terms of, first of all, our own relationship to God as human beings, as community, but also how do we find inspiration to confront what are our current social and political dilemmas that we're facing. Curiously enough, they're not that much different than what Abraham Heschel was facing back in those years, back in the 50s and 60s and 70s. But in particular, what I think here is one of the differences. There's a lot of social unrest and a lot of social movement happening in our country today, and it absolutely is necessary. But I think what is different for Heschel is that Heschel brought that additional component of a sense of God, of religion, of spirituality into the midst of all of it. He was moved not because of social concerns and issues, but he was moved because he felt as though the God of his tradition, the God of the prophets, called him to do that. And I think that gave him a different sense of foundational support when he was standing out there on the front lines. He wasn't just doing it because he felt as though things had to change socially and politically, but he felt as though God, through the prophets, had called him to be there. And I think that if he was out there today, he'd be saying that, you know, you need that one other fundamental underpinning to what it is you're doing. It's not just talking about injustices. It's understanding that God is calling you to stand and confront these injustices. I think that would be the big difference for Heschel. Do you think Heschel would have been marching in the protests after George Floyd's death? And how would it have been different if he had? Oh, I think he would have been there. I think he clearly would have been there. And I think one of the nice things about the protests that happened last summer in honor of George Floyd was how many people remarked that it was not just African-Americans on the street, that this had really galvanized Americans who were just fundamentally tired of all of this and felt as though they had to risk their own health to be on the streets all across this country. And so it didn't just happen in Minneapolis. It happened all over America, people, all over the world. People were deciding, you know, it's time that we can't allow this to happen anymore. I think Heschel would absolutely be there. And to be honest, I think a figure like Heschel, you would want a figure like Heschel out on the front lines because of the same reason. He spoke as a prophet, but he embodied the sense of the prophet. So that this sort of broadened the movement. I think that in Heschel's time, the civil rights movement was a broader, a more complete movement because Abraham Heschel was part of that. 
I have to say, I learned so much about Heschel in this documentary, and I did not realize that his background, his foundation was in Hasidic Judaism. And that was where the mysticism came from and how he incorporated that into his scholarship. Was he a part of or integrated, welcomed by the Hasidim here in America? Yes, he was. He had um, he had relatives here, and uh, he had a community in New York that he was part of, regularly part of. He was part of that community, and yet he spoke in a wider sense. He was one time quoted as saying, when he was asked by a reporter, do you consider yourself as a Jew? Do you consider yourself conservative, reform, orthodox? How do you consider yourself? And he famously one time responded by saying, I don't consider myself a Jew looking for an adjective. Instead, I'm actually just living the faith that I believe. I'm writing about what I feel as though the prophets are calling me to write about. And again and again and again, he was welcomed into all strands of Judaism. I heard recently an audio recording of Heschel, 1967. He went back to Hebrew Union College in Cincinnati, where he had been in 1940 to 1945. And it didn't go all that well. It was a reform school. He was having a hard time adjusting to America, the Western values of America. And yet, 20 years later, a generation later, he goes back to a Hebrew Union, and he gives these talks and presentations. You could hear in the audio recordings how the young students just loved him. You could hear them waiting for everything that he was going to say. And he loved being there. So for him, he was always able to sort of communicate beyond the boundaries and the barriers that sometimes divide the different sects. He did that masterfully. He was one of the very fortunate rabbinical students. I mean, he arrived in America as part of a program that plucked rabbis from Europe, brought them to America to study. It reminded me of the late Rabbi Herman Shalman in Chicago of blessed memory. He was also one of those fortunate rabbinical students. He was brought here in that same way. But yes, you talk about the <laughs> the shallowness, the indifference that Heschel encountered in America when he came here in this juxtaposition of America as a refuge, as Heschel's savior, but then the indifference that he encounters here and the frustration with that. Abraham Heschel's whole life, really, especially the part of his life here in the United States when he became a public figure, was to speak about the evil of indifference. He confronted that right from the very beginning. I mean, he arrives here in 1940. The war's already begun in Europe, and he's already seen the horrors of it. And he knows that Jews are trying to escape Europe, and many of them are trying to come to the United States, and they're not being let in in the numbers that really would represent a nation that was understanding of what was happening over in Europe at the time. And he was even part of a delegation that went to Washington, D.C., of rabbis to petition the White House, to petition Roosevelt and say, we have to do something more. We have to get together and do something more. And Roosevelt at the time, this is 1942, didn't even do the courtesy of meeting with them. He sent the vice president at the time. And so there was already a sense that we're going to do whatever we can, but it's probably not going to be enough. And we understand that. So that was an absolute marker for Heschel that he was going to have to stand up and speak about the indifference, not only around the world, but particularly in the country that was now his new adopted country. So he saw indifference again and again and again. He saw indifference in the front lines of Selma, people who were white people who were not getting involved in the issue. He's a white man, a white Jew, who decides to stand next to African-American Christians after having come to the United States because Christians in Germany and Christians in Europe were actually committing the worst unspeakable crimes against Jews. And yet he comes here and he stands besides Christians in this country, beside African-Americans in this country. So he is very different 
from them. And yet at the same time, he finds a common denominator and he's willing to sort of get beyond that sense because he feels as though he can't be indifferent. He cannot be indifferent. That's what he feels as though his life's mission is. Forgive me if I'm not recalling this correctly, but I believe his daughter was the one who made the point that Heschel believed the future of Jews in America was very much tied to the black church. I think what Heschel experienced in the 1940s and 50s, especially, was a sense of piety, a deep religious piety, of reverence, of gathering collectively as people to worship their God. He saw that as a reflection of what he understood to be the way that God should be worshipped in his time in Europe. And he felt as though that was going to be a saving grace for him. And so, in addition to what um, Susanna talks about, that being the way that he was able to mirror his own sense of piety and love of God being reflected as collective gathering. She also says clearly that now as she looks back on her father's experience, that she says, you know, going back now, I find that there is an absolute continuation of love and admiration and respect within the African-American civil rights community for my father, she says that is just unparalleled anyplace else. So when she gets together with Jesse Jackson and speaks, and she had up until he recently passed away, get together with John Lewis, Andrew Young, these were the leading iconic figures of the civil rights movement, and they continue to show their deep, deep appreciation for what Heschel brought to their movement at the time and made it a better, more encompassing movement. And she feels that sense of gratitude towards them. There's a moment in the film when you describe how a group of Alabama rabbis meet Heschel when he arrives and tell him to turn back because his participation will only make things worse for them. Did Rabbi Heschel understand that Jews were just as much a target as African-Americans, especially in the South? I think he did. I mean, he had already, by 1965, when he's on the front lines, he'd already been in this country for 25 years. The reality, the horror of what was happening in Europe was already clear. Everybody had known that. That generation was still dealing with that, trying to ask questions. Why did God abandon us? I mean, those were the deeper, most existential kinds of questions that people were having to confront. Heschel understood the consequences to all this, but I just feel as though that fundamentally he understood that there was just no other choice. This was a moral decision that had to be made. And once you make that decision, I think you know the way that you have to behave. Here is a man who lost his mother and his sisters in the Holocaust, another friends and family, and his loss of loved ones in the Holocaust. Did you get a sense of how that shaped his approach to social justice and these moral questions and the need to stand up? Well, I think in a very personal way, he understood the consequences of not confronting evil. He spoke often about how difficult it was for him to see what was happening back in the 1930s and how little resistance there really was and how much excitement there was about the rise of Nazism. It's just tragic to think about it. He describes himself as an optimist in some of the audio that you include in the documentary and how he believed in mercy. And I was struck by that. There's a lot of talk about how Pope Francis emphasizes mercy. And I had to wonder, is that a Jewish concept necessarily? Is it a popular Jewish concept that you hear come out of a rabbi's mouth very often? Well, I think he would argue that it's a central concept in Judaism. And I think that's part of what he was sort of able to highlight. He certainly did everything in his own living experience, in his writing, to show exactly that. Rabbi James Rudin, the former national director of interreligious affairs for American Jewish Committee, he lends an important voice to this documentary because when Second Vatican Council invited AJC to advise on the Roman Catholic Church's teaching about its relationship with Jews, 
Rudin's predecessor, Mark Tannenbaum, tapped Heschel to shepherd that process. In fact, let's listen to a clip in the documentary of Heschel talking about that. Christianity is a religion for which I have very great respect. I have great reverence for many Christians. But I also have to remind them that my being Jewish is so sacred to me that I am ready to die for it. And when a statement came out from the Ecumenical Council expressing the hope that the Jews would eventually join the church, I came out with a very strong rebuke. I would say I'd rather go to Auschwitz and give up my religion. And his appeals to the bishops worked because... Because of Heschel, we have Nostra Aetate, right, in which the church condemns anti-Semitism and does not call for conversion. Heschel is right there with that. And yet he's clear as he can be that Catholics need to turn away from this notion of Christianizing, evangelizing Jews. Respect me for who I am and honor my faith tradition. I'm not going to give up my faith tradition, but I want to engage with you and be present to you. And so that's kind of an example of how he understood how to navigate clearly that notion of being strong and determined and stand firmly on your pedestal and yet not be angry, not use language that's angry language. And here's the byproduct of it. 50 years later, when the tragedy happened at Tree of Life Synagogue in Pittsburgh, people had been just killed in terrible acts of violence. The next day, Pope Francis, who you just mentioned, Pope Francis publicly comes out and says, when they are hurting, we are hurting. We as a world community, we as a Catholic church are hurting is the language he used. That never would have happened. Can you, that would not have been on the radar at all before 1965. So part of what Heschel was able to do was open up this connectedness between the faith traditions. Boy, do we live in angry times with a lot to be angry about. Again, going back to Heschel's teachings and his example, what can we draw from him to navigate these times and that anger? I think with a determined heart and not an angry heart, I think you want to break the dam that will, as Amos would say, let the waters of justice flow the way that they should be flowing. We're good at building dams and stopping that flow of justice. But the truth of the matter is there are others among us who really feel as though it's time to break the dam and open up. And as Amos would say, let justice roll down like waters. And that's, I think, exactly what he would be saying. I think he's really a wonderful character in terms of how to try to move and make change, how to confront people who hate you with a sense of firmness and yet with love and not with anger. I think that's, you know, to read Heschel, that's always the constant mantra in his work. He's just able to do that and hold firmly to that ground. I think we're all the beneficiaries of that. The documentary is called Spiritual Audacity, a term Heschel used in a telegram to President John F. Kennedy, which you learn about in the film. The documentary begins airing on May 5th. Check your local PBS affiliate for dates and times. Thank you so much for joining us. A pleasure. Thank you for having me. The Jewish Lives Podcast is a monthly show about influential Jews from antiquity to the present through the lens of Yale's prize-winning Jewish Lives biography series. Wander through the desert with Moses. Overcome stage fright with Barbara Streisand. Roam the tough streets of Brooklyn with Bugsy Siegel. And stage a protest with Emma Goldman. Jewish Lives was kind enough to send me their Rev Cook biography, Mystic in a Time of Revolution, by Yehuda Mirsky. It was great to learn some of the history behind the ideological father of religious Zionism, and pretty amazing to read that the one time Rev Cook visited New York, he actually stayed on the street I live on now. Explore a chapter of the Jewish experience in each episode, 
You can find the Jewish Lives podcast at jewishlives.org slash podcast or wherever you get your podcasts. And there's more. Friends of People of the Pod save 25% and get free shipping on all books at jewishlives.org. Just use code PODCAST25 at checkout, only at jewishlives.org. Now it's time for our closing segment, Shabbat Table Talk. And joining us at our Shabbat table this week is the program director of AJC's Muslim Jewish Advisory Council, Natalia Mahmoud. Natalia, when you're talking with your family this weekend, what are you going to be talking about? Hi, Safi. Hi, Manya. In addition to preparing for the month of Ramadan, the ninth month of the Muslim calendar when fasting takes place, my family and I will be celebrating the reintroduction of the Jabara Hire No Hate Act in Congress. The bill is expected to be reintroduced on a bipartisan basis in the House and Senate next week. The Muslim Jewish Advisory Council, a civil society coalition that is co-convened by AJC and the Islamic Society of North America, has been advocating for the passage of this bill since it was introduced almost two years ago in order to help close the gap in hate crimes reporting. The bill passed the House twice in the previous session of Congress, but I am optimistic that it will be signed into law before the end of this session. Timing is of the essence, as fear and uncertainty around the pandemic is giving way to hatred, xenophobia, and conspiracy theories. This has led to an increase in attacks on the Asian American community, and we've seen some horrific incidents take place just this week. As religious minorities in the U.S., you and I know the kind of impact these types of attacks can have on the community and on our society. Our government needs reliable data so it can properly understand, investigate, and prosecute hate crimes and provide necessary resources to survivors. At present, the FBI is required by law to gather data on hate crimes every year, but the information is undeniably inaccurate. Victims inconsistently report hate crimes and the law enforcement community is not always equipped to identify them. Because reporting is voluntary, Dozens of cities fail to contribute to the FBI report or simply report zero hate crimes. Sizable cities like Baltimore, Savannah, Allentown, and Little Rock did not report any data for the most recent FBI report. The Jabara Hire No Hate Act provides a first step in addressing these challenges by incentivizing state and local law enforcement authorities to improve hate crime reporting by making grants available for resources like law enforcement trainings, the creation of reporting hotlines, increased resources for the affected communities, and public education forums on hate crimes. So as we enter the weekend, I am grateful to those members of Congress who showed true leadership in overcoming partisan divides to reintroduce this bill together. We will have more information for your listeners so they can urge their elected officials to support the bill. So keep an eye out on the Take Action page on AJC's website at ajc.org slash take action. What are you thinking about this week, Manya? This week at our Shabbat table, we'll be talking about passports. I got my first ticket to freedom and international adventure when I was 23. And while I haven't traveled as widely as many of my colleagues, my little blue booklet did not gather dust. It got me to Canada, England, Italy, Russia, and Burkina Faso. Sadly, Israel is not on the list, at least not yet. But when I traveled to Burkina Faso, an absolutely beautiful country in West Africa, 
I couldn't go anywhere without a canary yellow card tucked into my passport, proving I had been inoculated against yellow fever. It was a small price to pay for a hell of a trip. That's why I'm eager for another passport, a vaccine passport. Israel was the first country to implement this concept, a certificate that admits people to public spaces and venues and to travel, among others who also have been vaccinated. Thankfully, there are several vaccines now against the coronavirus and a chance for all of us to eat out, go to concerts, and travel someday soon. My husband and I continue to wait our turn for the shot, and we grow less patient every day we can't get an appointment. But once we do, we know we aren't completely out of the woods. We live in New Jersey, which right now has the highest rate of infection in the country. Scientists are studying whether those who are vaccinated can still pick up the virus and transmit it to others, which is the last thing we want to do. A vaccine passport would reduce the chances of that spread. Of course, not everyone can get the vaccine as soon as others. My husband and I are prime examples. I won't lie. We are very jealous of you, Sefi. We want that shot. And there are other ethical considerations as well. Sadly, though, now that the Biden administration is looking into a similar passport system and weighing those ethical implications, the idea has turned political and condemnations have turned into a gross manipulation of Holocaust history. The Libertarian Party of Kentucky compared the passports to Nazi Germany's practice of mandating Jews to wear yellow stars of David. North Carolina Congressman Madison Cawthorn said proposals like the vaccine passport smack of 1940s Nazi Germany. But perhaps the most surprising and hence the most troubling tweet was from former U.S. envoy to Germany Richard Grinnell, a friend of AJC's, who in the past has demonstrated a keen awareness when it comes to the security of Jews and Israel. Never compare the Holocaust to anything, ever. That's what he tweeted in 2019 when Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez described migrant detention centers at the border as concentration camps. Whether you agree or disagree with that is not my point here. This week, Ambassador Grinnell tweeted, You're hiding unvaccinated people under your floorboards, aren't you? And urged his followers to speak up now. So I'm speaking up. Please stop. Stop with the Holocaust analogies. Stop politicizing this virus. Stop politicizing anti-Semitism. Full stop. We are bracing for a fourth wave of this virus. A fourth wave. I want a vaccine. I want one of those passports so we can start enjoying life again. And once this pandemic is over, my children will get their international passports. They won't have to wait until they're 23. The world beckons. Iceland, Italy, Israel, here we come. And that's what we'll be talking about at our Shabbat table. Sefi? Well, happy holiday, everyone. Chag Sameach. No, I'm not talking about Pesach, though that's a good and important holiday, too. I'm talking about one of the happiest days of the year, baseball opening day. And it's an important Jewish holiday, too. The great Solomon Schechter, founder of conservative Judaism, told one of his students, Louis Finkelstein, who would himself go on to serve as chancellor of the Jewish Theological Seminary for more than 30 years, that American rabbis had an obligation to follow baseball because they had to connect to their congregants and understand their passions. Solomon Schechter died in 1915 and Finkelstein became chancellor in 1940. In between, America got its first Jewish sports superstar, first baseman Hank Greenberg of the Detroit Tigers. Greenberg went on to a Hall of Fame career, being selected as an all-star five times and winning two World Series. 
He also sat out a crucial game on Yom Kippur decades before pitcher Sandy Koufax would do the same. And mindful of the abuse he faced as a Jewish ballplayer, famously welcomed Jackie Robinson when the Dodgers star broke Major League Baseball's color barrier. In 1980, Hammer and Hank sat down with AJC to record an interview for our William E. Wiener Oral History Library. This project is one of the largest ethnic collections of oral histories in the United States, comprising 6,000 hours of taped interviews and more than 150,000 pages of transcripts. To celebrate opening day, we'll close today's episode with two minutes from Hank Greenberg about what it was like to be America's first Jewish sports superstar. Here's Hank. I was in a fight in, uh, in Dallas, Texas. We had a riot on the field, you know, fist fight with the, both teams, you know, on the field. They had a big article in the, in the Dallas newspapers. They had a whole ball, ballpark was jammed the next, you know, next day with people and everything was focused on that dirty Jew on the field, you know. So when you ask me, was like, how was I conscious of it? I mean, you're never unconscious of, of this thing happening all the time, you know, fans yelling at you and every every ballpark I went to there'd be somebody in the stands and was, uh, spent the whole afternoon just calling me you know uh, names and it's hard not to be such did you feel very alienated being the only two I didn't really think of it uh, I mean I was conscious of it I mean no no one would ever let you forget it uh, you hear it from the stands all the time what, what, what kind of things well you know name calling which is typical of all most sports and Today and then, yeah. But, you know, they call you Sheenie or a Jew or a kike, whatever. That was a part of the uh, psychological warfare. Did you hear it from the other teams, Benjamin? Oh, sure, all the time. Yeah. That was part of the game. I, I, I didn't feel, I'm sure there were some anti-Semitic ballplayers. I think in those days, a lot of them didn't know what a Jew was. A lot of them came from the rural uh, south. I know my roommate, uh, Jojo White, who came from Atlanta, I remember him telling me, he said, hell, he said, I thought all those Jews had horns. So uh, he didn't know what a Jew was. He, he just had heard the word, but uh, knew there were people like that. But as far as he was concerned, uh, uh, I could have been Frankenstein. I mean, that, that's what a Jew was supposed to look like. I was in baseball for 35 years, so I'm sure there's a lot of prejudice that existed on the field, off the field, and exists today, too. You're going to have a lot of bigoted people in this world, and... Uh, uh, it's not going to change, but uh, I like to feel that uh, being Jewish and being the object of a lot of uh, derogatory remarks, it kept me on my toes all the time and made me, uh, I had to be, I, I could never relax and, uh, you know, be one of the boys, so to speak. So I, I think it helped me in my career because it always made me aware of the fact that uh, I had a little extra burden to bear, and uh, it made me a better ballpark. You can subscribe to People of the Pod on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Podcasts, or learn more at ajc.org slash people of the pod. The views and opinions of our guests don't necessarily reflect the positions of AJC. We'd love to hear your views and opinions or your questions. You can reach us at peopleofthepod at ajc.org. If you've enjoyed this episode, please be sure to tell your friends, tag us on social media with hashtag people of the pod, and hop onto Apple Podcasts to rate us and write a review to help more listeners find us. Thank you for listening. This episode is brought to you by AJC. 
Our producers are Kukong Do and Atara Lakritz. Our sound engineer is TK Broderick. Tune in next week for another episode of People of the Pod.